choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 188 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 10 Command Module Pilot John Young. Sure, we uh, we did a lot of work with uh, space and read a lot of books about space. Uh, Buck Rogers and, and Flash Gordon and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, books on. Uh, Probably the first science fiction, you know, John Carter on Mars and that bunch. We did a lot of that. We had a lot of models that we worked on, uh, little tiny models. But to say that you'd ever be an astronaut was just not practical because there wasn't any such thing. That was John Young recalling some of his early life interest in spaceflight. As I'm sure everyone knows, John Young is a retired American astronaut, naval officer, and aviator test pilot, and aeronautical engineer. He became the ninth person to walk on the moon as commander of Apollo 16 in 1972. Young enjoyed the longest career of any astronaut, becoming the first person to make six space flights over the course of 42 years of active NASA service, and is the only person to have piloted and been commander of four different classes of spacecraft, Gemini, the Apollo Command Service Module, the Apollo Lunar Module, and the Space Shuttle. But let's start at the beginning. John Watts Young was born in San Francisco, California on September 24, 1930, to parents William Hugh Young and Wanda Howland Young. At 18 months old, due to the Great Depression, he moved with his family to Georgia and then to Orlando, Florida, where he attended grade school and later Orlando High School until graduating in 1948. Young was a Boy Scout and earned the rank of second class. Young married Barbara White of Savannah, Georgia and had two children with her. Sandra and John, but they were divorced in 1972 after 16 years. He later married Susie Feldman and lives in El Lago, Texas, a suburb of Houston. Young earned a Bachelor of Science degree with highest honors in aeronautical engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology in 1952 While attending, he became a member of the National Military Honor Society, Scabbard and Blade, and Sigma Chi Fraternity, and he entered the Navy ROTC program. On June 6, 1952, Young was commissioned as an ensign. 
He served as fire control officer on the destroyer USS Laws until June 1953 and completed a tour in the Sea of Japan during the Korean War. Following this assignment, he was sent to flight training. In January 1954, he was designated a Navy helicopter pilot, and after receiving his aviator wings on December 20, 1954, he was assigned to Fighter Squadron 103, VF-103, for four years, flying F-9 Cougars from the USS Coral Sea and F-8 Crusaders from the USS Forrestal. After training at the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School in 1959, Young was assigned to the Naval Air Test Center at Naval Air Station Patuxent River, Maryland, for three years. His test projects included evaluations of the XF-8U-3 Crusader III and F-4 Phantom II fighter weapons systems. In 1962, he set two world time-to-climb records while flying his Phantom II, obtaining 3,000 meters in altitude from a standing start in 34.523 seconds and obtaining 25,000 meters in altitude from a standing start in 227.6 seconds. But to Young, he was just doing his job. You like to, to uh, do jobs that uh, allow you to get hands-on experience with uh, making new vehicles work. Yeah, I think that advancing uh, technology is very important to the world today. It really is. During John Young's service in the Navy, he logged more than 15,275 hours flying time in propeller, jets, helicopter, and rocket jets more than 9,200 hours in T-38s, and 835 hours in spacecraft during six space flights. In 1962, John Young was selected by NASA as a part of Astronaut Group 2. He immediately began his training for a Gemini mission. John Young remembers the training was easy. In fact, he was the most laid-back astronaut on the team. His Gemini colleagues called him the uncomplaining dark horse, the guy that made the hard work seem effortless. Fellow astronaut Charles Bolden described Young as one of the best pilots he had ever met. Mike Collins wrote that John Young was mysterious, the epitome of the non-hero with a country boy's demeanor, which masked a delightful wit and a keen engineer's mind. Here's a clip of John Young recalling his parasail training for Jiminy. This is parasail in the Jiminy program that we practice because we use uh, ejection seats. And so uh, the theory was that you had to know how to land in water with a pressure suit on. It was good training. It was a lot of fun. Parasailing, you know, is the kind of thing people do now at the resorts all over the place. But back in, back in those days, that was in the early 60s, it was uh, something new. Here's Young talking about centrifuge and survival training. And they'd shake you at about, as I recall, 11 cycles per second. And we found out that anything 
in excess of about a quarter of a G. The instrument panel was so blurred that you couldn't read it. They would run at the at the Germany launch vehicle profile, which is about, uh, shoot, I don't know, it went all the way up to 7 Gs. Well, it just feels like your hand's seven times heavier than it would be normally. But the part that they were interested in, they only went to like four and a half Gs. That's nothing. There's a special technique involved in getting out so you didn't uh, get water in the spacecraft. And we went to survival training all over the world. Uh, Panama, we trained for desert survival training in uh, the at Reno, Nevada, and trained for uh, water survival training at, uh, in Pensacola with the Navy. Young was the first of astronaut group two to fly in space. He replaced Tom Stafford as pilot of Gemini 3 when Alan Shepard, the original command pilot, was grounded due to a health problem. Young made the first manned flight of the Gemini spacecraft with Gus Grissom, in 1965. Young scored another space first by smuggling a corned beef sandwich onto the spacecraft, a feat for which he was reprimanded. Here's John Young on Gemini 3. Felt very good. We'd worked very hard to uh, get started in the Gemini program and it was a real honor to be picked to go on a first flight. There again, anybody could have done the job. In fact, they had picked two other fellows to go earlier, and it was uh, they had to cancel them out because of one reason or another. So it was uh, not only what, did I feel very good, I felt lucky as a Dickens. After Gemini 3, Young trained as a backup pilot for Gemini 6A. But after the corn beef controversy, it seemed that NASA was not sure what to do with him. Other Group 2 astronauts with flight experience were quickly moved to the Apollo program, while astronauts such as Scott Carpenter and Gordon Cooper were sidelined for lesser infractions. The assignment of Gemini 7 backup command pilot Ed White to Apollo created an opening for Young as commander of Gemini 10 in 1966. The mission was the first to perform a rendezvous with two Agena target vehicles, and his pilot, Mike Collins, performed two spacewalks. Here's Young commenting on Gemini 10. We did a rendezvous with that uh, Agena, which was passive. We did it by eyeball, uh, the kind of old techniques that you would use in uh, pre-World War I days. It was a lot of fun to do that. I think the uh, thing that the Gemini 10 mission achieved that was most significant from a technical standpoint was the use of that docked Agena to uh, extend the range of orbits that you could fly. Uh, that The fact that I was able to fly on the Agena and uh, Mike Collins was able to crawl over and bring a package back that had been on, on that Agena for three months while it was up in space, in other words, built, visited another passage satellite from space and bring something back. I think that was really a significant milestone. We also made a landing that was uh, about as close as you can get to the ship without being on the flight deck, and that was pretty good. So we had a lot, we had a really interesting mission from start to finish. And in fact, the old Gemini allowed us to demonstrate a real routine operations in uh, near Earth space. In its day, it, it did things that uh, even now uh, the Russians are uh, claiming our routine. So it was really something. 
After Jiminy was over, Young was assigned the job of troubleshooting Apollo systems and, of course, training for the actual Apollo missions. It's a typical kind of engineering thing that astronauts do, which sounds very glamorous, but they really spend a heck of a lot of time doing dog work of that nature. In 1966, Young was assigned to an Apollo crew as command module pilot with Commander Tom Stafford and Lunar Module Pilot Eugene Cernan. This crew was assigned as backup to the second manned Apollo mission, planned before the Apollo 1 fire. After the fire, Young's crew were assigned as backup to the first manned mission, Apollo 7, which flew in October of 1968. In May of 1969, this crew, Stafford, Young, and Cernan, flew to the moon in Apollo 10. Here's John Young on leaving Earth for the first time. The first two or three hours, the Earth shrinks to about as small as it gets, as you can tell any difference. And from then on, when you're looking back at it, it looks like a picture. There's really not enough uh, dimensions to see anything but something that's flat. It was very strange. It looked almost like something out of science fiction. You didn't know whether to believe it or not. But I can tell you that we did it in there. We didn't use mirrors. It was something. While Stafford and Cernan flew the lunar module in lunar orbit for the first time, Young flew the command module solo. It's very different from what you see uh, looking through a telescope, uh, traveling over the lunar surface at about a mile a second looking down. Everything is different. The rills are like rivers. There are certain craters uh, at many places on the moon that are uh, bright, speckly, uh, rayed craters that stand out uh, just like stoplights so that you can go around the moon and recognize, uh, once you get to know it, just where you're at on the surface. In fact, much easier than you can recognize where you are on the Earth unless you're a real student of geography. Here's John Young's perspective on Apollo 10 possibly making a landing on the moon. There was some discussion at the time that they wanted to land Apollo 10 on the moon, but the feeling was that we just didn't know enough to do that. So we took the next uh, thing, and I was happy to be on the next mission that I could get on. And I think uh, everybody else in the office was the same way. I don't know, uh, just never would have occurred to me to uh, want it to have been anyplace else than where I was on Apollo 10. After Apollo 10, Young was backup commander of Apollo 13. Recall that that was the troubled mission in which the moon landing was aborted because of an explosion in the service module. Young had a central role in rescuing the Apollo 13 crew by participating in the team that developed procedures to stretch the lunar module consumables and reactivate the command module systems prior to re-entry. By rotation, John Young became commander of Apollo 16 and was an enthusiastic student of geology while preparing for the mission. Apollo 16's lunar landing was almost aborted when a malfunction was detected in the SPS engine control system in the service module. Here's a clip of an uncharacteristically excited John Young as he landed on the moon. Go for landing. 42 LPD. 
Okay, fuel is good, 10%. That comes to shadow. Okay, down at 3, 50 feet. Down at 4, give me one quick up. You're backing up slightly. Okay, two down. Stand by for contact. Come on, let her down. You level off. Let her on down. Okay, 7, 6%, plenty fat. Contact. On the surface, Young took three moonwalks in the Descartes Highlands with Charles Duke on April 21st, 22nd, and 23rd of 1972, making Young the ninth person to walk on the surface of the moon, while Ken Mattingly flew the command module in lunar orbit. Young also set a speed record with the lunar rover. Young's final assignment in Apollo was as the backup commander for Gene Cernan on Apollo 17. Cernan had injured his knee playing softball a few months before the flight. If the injury had been more severe, Cernan would have been medically dropped from the flight and Young would have commanded the last two Apollo moon landings. After Apollo in 1973, Young was made chief of the space shuttle branch of the astronaut office. In January of 1974, he became chief of the astronaut office after the retirement of Alan Shepard. Young flew two missions on the space shuttle, including commanding the program's 1981 maiden orbital flight STS-1 and STS-9 in 1983, which carried the first Space Lab module. He was in line to make a record seventh flight on STS-61 to deploy the Hubble Space Telescope in 1986, but the Challenger disaster earlier that year delayed NASA's schedule. Here's Young recalling his first shuttle mission, STS-1. There's Crip waiting to go fly. He doesn't look very nervous, but you can see I have a nervous smile there. I think I was as nervous as Crip was, but I'm just so old that my, my heart wouldn't go any faster. But uh, anybody who's not apprehensive about climbing on top of a first-time flight of a liquid hydrogen-oxygen uh, rocket ship really doesn't understand the problem. And I think both Crip and I were fairly nervous. Did you see the nose pitches forward when the engines light off? The solid rocket motors blow, and the vehicle lifts off a good deal faster than this. This, again, is high-speed, slow motion. The most uh, impact we got on the whole vehicle occurred right there at liftoff, and it was way beyond design spec. This is the inner tank access arm right there, and we come very close to it, seven feet away. The first space shuttle, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. The roll program, we thought from all our tests, was going to be very jerky and oscillatory, but it wasn't. It just smooth as glass. The solid rocket motors, as it goes down range, it casts a, a bright white hue on the back of the tank and really heats it up pretty good. This is a separation of solid rocket motors taken through a camera inside the orbiter. You can see when those uh, booster separation motors fire that it casts a plume all over the vehicle. And those solid rocket motors uh, go up to 250,000 feet and they float back in the water and you recover them and reuse them. 
And I'd, I'd often said that I'd never volunteer to fly a reuse set of rocket motors, and I found out they're going to put the first reuse set on uh, first space lab mission. This is separation of the tank. As you can see, the aerodynamic heating has uh, charted it black. Up by the nose, there's more aerodynamic heating turned to black up there. When we came back and talked to the engineers, we said, uh, boy, it looks like that tank's been in a war. And they said, shoot, we knew all about that. But they didn't tell us. It was really delightful to work up there in zero gravity. This is the first thing when we opened the payload bay doors and we looked out and we saw the tiles missing. Crip said he wasn't nervous, but I was nervous. We finally uh, closed the payload bay doors to, to do re-entry. Uh, and this shows that closing. We were very interested in the performance of those doors because uh, the key to the whole uh, space shuttle is really based around those doors operating properly every time to put payloads in and out to get access to cooling the vehicle. This is re-entry. We're probably moving at Mach 18.6. This is uh, 12 times faster than real time. But it's really beautiful, and you can feel the vehicle turning right up over the water. Really tremendous. There we'll see Mach 10 roll reversal. This is a roll back at uh, Mach 4.8 over Bakersfield, California. The vehicle was behaving uh, very solidly. It's a beautiful handling machine. We thought there'd be a lot of buffet associated with flying it, but there was no buffet once we got subsonic. Just a classy smooth from then on. It's just incredible when you look and see the vehicle and see all that machinery hanging out on the back that there wouldn't be buffet associated with that, but there just wasn't any. Pinky Nelson was taking pictures underneath the orbiter with a chase plane to, to assess tile damage. And they found out we'd gotten about 300 tile hits. We're coming down at 20 degrees gamma, which is about six times uh, steeper than the average airliner makes an approach. You're maintaining your airspeed out there at about 285 knots equivalent airspeed. Yes, come on. Go down. 50 feet. 40. 30. 20. 10. 5. 4. 3. 2. 1. Touchdown. The landing was, uh, I'd have to say, it was one of my best landings because I made a whole bunch of landings in T-38s right after the flight, and none of them were as good as that one. Deceleration and roll out of the orbiter. We have the speed brakes open on the rudder there. Uh, the lake bed was giving us a lot of friction and the brakes worked really well. And we got the vehicle stopped uh, in uh, pretty much record time. It's hard to believe that the vehicle uh, weighs as much as it does. It weighed about 99 tons. And uh, it's quite impressive to be there on that lake bed. It's opened up a new, a uh, whole new era in the use of space for practical value and for exploration value and for in the long run I think put human beings up there permanently uh, both in near earth space and out by the moon which is really near earth space once you get the vehicles that you need to operate out there routinely and I think uh, you'll find that people will like to operate out there and in about 50 years from now I predict uh, there'll be a lot of people working in space not only on the moon, but on the other planets that we can uh, get to, and probably on some of the asteroids. Young was openly critical of NASA management following the Challenger disaster, and in April 1987, he was made special assistant to JSC director Aaron Cohen for engineering 
operations and safety. NASA denied that his criticism triggered the move. In February 1996, Young was assigned as Associate Technical Director at JSC. And, after 42 years, Young retired on December 31, 2004, at the age of 74. But, he continued to attend the Monday morning meetings at the astronaut office at JSC for several years thereafter. On April 12, 2006, Young appeared at the 25th anniversary of the STS-1 launch at the Kennedy Space Center, along with pilot Robert Crippen. The two spoke of their experiences during the flight. In 2012, Young published an autobiography entitled Forever Young. Young won numerous awards and honors during his career, and I will list just a few of them. Inducted into six Aviation Astronaut Halls of Fame, General James E. Hill Lifetime Space Achievement Award, Golden Plate Award for Science and Exploration, American Astronomical Society Space Flight Award, NASA Ambassador of Exploration Award, and six honorary doctorate degrees. In closing, in 1982, Young was asked what he would like his epitaph to say. Here's his response. Good grief. How <laughs> would I like to see any epitaph? <laughs> I have no idea. I worry about a lot of things, but I haven't worried about that yet. <laughs> <laughs> You're really pushing me, aren't you? <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 188 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 10, Command Module Pilot, John Young. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that and more on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. Thank you very much, Patreon donors, especially those who honored your pledge this month. Had a couple of afterthoughts for this week's episode. Once again, I want to remind everyone that all previous episodes are now available on iTunes as well as at the homepage. Now, to me, John Young seems to be a man with extraordinary accomplishments, but with a very humble attitude. And I really admire him for that. He has a tremendous amount to brag about, 
but he always plays it down as just doing his job. I wish there were more like John Young. And I think his reputation has completely recovered from the corned beef controversy. (laughs) Moving on, did you catch Young's prediction that in 50 years we would have people working on the moon and the planets? Now, he made that prediction in 1982, so I guess that would be around 2032. Wow, I wish that prediction would come true. But from the present, it seems very optimistic. After all, the U.S. can't even put an astronaut in space without help from the Russians. But I don't want to end on a sad note. I have another clip of John that didn't really fit in anywhere else. This also comes from 1982, and he was asked the question, what makes an astronaut? The same thing that makes anybody else uh, that's uh, interested in their line of work. They have to be interested in it, have to work hard at it, and have to hang in there and uh, do a good job at it. And I think that's true of if you're making a television production or or uh, flying an airplane or going fishing. Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was very pleased to receive 11 donations to support the podcast over the past week. First, we have Preston R. from Florida, who donated significantly above the Orion level. Thank you very much, Preston. Craig H. from Australia donated at the Vostok level. Thank you, Craig. Kevin G. from Illinois donated at the Sputnik level. Thank you, Kevin. Wayne and Naomi from Washington made another donation and were promoted to the Salyut Skylab level. Thank you very much, Wayne and Naomi. Benjamin O. from Australia donated at the Mercury level. Thank you, Benjamin. B. Adams from Canada donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. Jonathan P. from New York City donated at the Orion level and also earned his rocket emoji. Thank you, Jonathan, very much. Anthony D. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. John Z. from New Jersey donated at the Soyuz level. Thank you, John. George B. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. And Benjamin R. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level as well. Thank you very much, all donors. I sincerely appreciate it. That brings our Patreon donors to 78. We lost two and gained two from last week. Our overall donors for the year are 203, with a goal of reaching 250 by the end of 2016. So, we only need 47 more donors by the end of December. Okay. (laughs) That's quite a challenge, I know, but we really had a good week this week. If we have a few more like that, we might just make the 250. Okay, for those of you who haven't donated yet and are enjoying the podcast, there is still time. Uh, and also, this is an, a strategic time in the year to donate because you can make a donation in December and then make another one in January and very quickly earn a rocket or moon emoji. 
So, if you are enjoying the podcast and can afford to help, please do so. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for only a dollar per month. Sort of like a voluntary subscription. To make a one-time donation, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button on the top right of the page. Or you can sign up with Patreon by clicking on the Patreon link also on the home page. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. Donors that donate two years in a row receive the rocket emoji, and those who donate three years in a row receive the treasured moon emoji next to their name on the donors list. I want to encourage everyone to feel free to share the podcast. You may link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media, And thanks to those who've already done so, like my retweeters, who I will recognize all of you on next week's episode. This is the end of content for this episode. You are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you would like. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we're going to light the candle. I certainly hope, because it's been a while to get there. In podcast news, we had another fantastic month in November. It was the second highest ever for downloads. In November, the podcast was heard in 92 countries around the world. These are the top 10 countries with the most downloads for November. Number 1, U.S. Number 2, Germany. Number 3, U.K. Number 4, Australia returns to 4th. Number 5, Canada drops one place by a very narrow margin. Number six, Ireland moves up to sixth. France moves up to seven. At number eight, we have Sweden, number nine, Denmark, and number 10, Austria. In personal news, I had a very busy week since I last spoke to you. Amongst other things, our well water pump stopped working on Friday night while we were celebrating my daughter's birthday. The old Foothill headquarters was without running water until Monday afternoon. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I sometimes forget how nice it is to have running water. And you really appreciate it once you lose it. Let me tell you that. (laughs) So anyway, we got the water back on just in time for me to take a shower before my eye surgery on Tuesday. I had a cataract removed from my right eye on Tuesday morning. Now, if you've never had this procedure before, I want to assure you that cataract surgery here in the United States is not a big deal at all, unless, of course, something goes wrong. My surgery only lasted about 20 minutes, and I was awake the whole time. Now, they did give me an IV filled with some type of chemical that made me not really care about someone sticking a sharp object in my eye. <laughs> but I tell you what, I can see a whole lot better already, and apparently it, take, it gets better as time passes until it reaches the best eyesight so far. But I tell you, I can see a whole lot better out of my right eye now, and that makes me feel pretty good. Okay, that's about all the time I have for this week. I hope to have episode 189 up by next Thursday. So long for now.